All right. Hey, if you guys can go ahead and turn your, to your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. That's where we're going to be camping out today. Um, as you do that, I just want to say thank you guys uh, for being here. I really do appreciate it as uh, your pastor. And I know there can be a million different things, and the weather's still beautiful outside, and the campsites are still open, and McConaughey's still calling our names. Uh, but thank you guys for being here. I really do appreciate it. And thank you just for prioritizing your spiritual growth. Uh, not only do I appreciate it, but I know the Lord appreciates it, and uh, He's going to bless you for that. Uh, but anyways, thank you guys for all being here this morning. Today we're in our part two of our four-part series called Stand. Now, if you missed out on part one, we are recording uh, these uh, sermons, uh, the ones already uploaded from last week, so you can go online at therocknp.com. Check that out, along with our events and all the other things going on here at The Rock Church. But uh, last week, we talked about how to stand out, and we discussed that there's a proper way to stand out for God, and that as God's people, we would rather be remembered for standing out than forgotten blending in. We'd rather be remembered for standing out than being forgotten blending in. God calls his people to stand out, but there's a way to do that. There's a way to do that. That As we live this life for Jesus, there are going to be times where God is going to ask you to stand out for his fame, not yours. He's going to ask you to stand out for his glory, not ours, and really just to point people to the name of Jesus Christ. Christ. So again, you can catch that up on therockNP.com. Uh, today's will be recorded, so we'll have that all rolling and going. But today we're going to be looking at another time in Daniel's life in Daniel chapter 4. This series called Stand It is going through the book of Daniel, but we're not going through the entire book. Uh, what I'm doing is we're kind of uh, picking out pieces of Daniel's life that kind of just talks about what does it mean to take a stand in Jesus's name. What does it mean to take a stand in Jesus' name? And the reason we're going through this series is because I believe if we as a group of people or as an individual, if we take a stand for the right things at the right time in the right way, we can truly change history. But you have to have that equation there before you do it. You have to take a stand for the right thing at the right time for the right reason. We saw this with Martin Luther King Jr. when he stood up for civil rights because he took a stand for the, the right things at the right time in the right way. And look what happened now. History was completely changed. But on the flip side, we know that if we don't take a stand and we decide to compromise, if we compromise for the wrong things at the wrong time in the wrong way, things can turn sour very fast. A lot of people, and we'll talk about this today, that the, 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 the principle of compromising seems like a good avenue to take, right? It's kind of the, everyone, it's a win-win situation when we compromise. But when I read scripture from cover to cover, uh, the Lord did not compromise anything. He didn't compromise anything. In fact, I think there, if there was a time for him to compromise, it'd probably be in the garden when he was praying, asking the Father to take the cup away from him. He's saying, you know, Lord, if this, would you just, I don't want to do this. Would you take this cup? And you know what? Since he was Jesus, he could have compromised, but he didn't. He stood up for what was right. And so this is why we're going through it, because I believe we as God's people, we're not people of, of, of compromising things, but we should be people that we stand up for the right things in the right way at the right time. So today we're going to talk about standing up. No matter who you are or what you do, there are going to be times in your life where someone you love, that's the key, when someone you love is going to do something where you feel prompt to stand up to them. It's easy to stand up to somebody when we don't know them, right? Right? 
It happens all the time. We see it on Facebook, right? We tell, you know, the president to run the presidency this way or the governor to do it this way or, or telling our schools to run the schools like this way. And we don't know them, so it's easy for us to take a stand up. But what about what happens when we stand up to somebody who we love dearly, where we know them from the inside, that we know that if we stand up, conflict can happen. If we stand up, feelings could get hurt. If we stand up, they can walk out of our lives. What do we do when that happens? And so today's message, I want to make sure that we hear this correctly, because honestly, uh, it will be a very easy to misunderstand what I'm trying to say. And I think that's why I, uh, this morning I kind of woke up with kind of just a spirit of just heaviness and couldn't exactly know why. How many of you guys know like when the kids don't sleep and all that stuff, like you're, like, you're kind of groggy and it's like, Ugh, and all that stuff. Uh, and then like, you, like everything just kind of annoys you. Anyone there? Parents, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's like they did absolutely nothing wrong. They just spilt that Cheerio. It's not a big deal, but you like you flip out. Didn't happen today. I'm not saying that happened. But it's, it's, it's kind, of that, kind of that heaviness. And I think it's because it comes down to this, that, that, that I think we can misunderstand what the message is today. And this is why when we stand up, we are essentially confronting people. We confront people. We confront the people that we love. And for some of us in this room, we are so over-confrontational, it could seem like I'm handing you like a loaded gun and a bottle of whiskey, and you're like, give me someone to kill, right? It's like, let's just, I, I can confront like no other. Like, I can lay the hammer down, Vaughn. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Then for some of us, maybe we cringe at any sight of confrontation. We kind of like stick our head in the sand and act like nothing's happening and we, we run the opposite way or we just ignore everything where we think happy thoughts and we just think, oh, it's just okay, it's just going to blow over, it's just, a, it's just a season. I mean, just for fun, by the raise of hands, how many of us are naturally confrontational? Just, just raise your hand. I, I'm one of them. Okay, okay, just a few of us. Okay, some of you are like, yeah, you better raise your hand. Like, I, I know who you are, that you should probably raise your hand too. And so just, just saying. But, but how many of us are naturally like non-confrontational? Like you just ignore it and run away from it, right? You're like, uh, okay, some of you guys did not raise your hands. You are part of the non-confrontational because you probably thought it would just cause enough controversy if you just raise your hands. And so like, like the, but they're, they're, those are kind of like the, the two extremes. In this world, we have these two types of people. And these are the first two points. For, uh, the first one is this. The two extremes is this. Some are unwilling to confront. Some are just unwilling to confront. That's point number one. They tend to think, well, like, uh, well, that issue is none of my business, or who am I to judge, or the situation will pass. You go and leave it up there. Uh, these people will just do about anything to avoid confrontation. Then there are people who love to confront. We just love it. And that's why point number two, some confront unlovingly. Some confront unlovingly. Today with social media, it is so easy to confront somebody but not really understand all that is going on. That's called arguing without context. It's so easy, so easy to confront someone when we don't know the entire story. And, it, and so they confront with such a harsh way and judge in ways that, that that is wrong because they don't know all the facts. For an example, my wife is part of a, a mother's page on Facebook with thousands of moms just post about motherhood and questions. It's actually a really cool place because they can come together and post uh, things and questions about motherhood and other mothers can come around them and, and just, you know, give them resources and speak positivity. But there are some people on that page. Oh, I 
it, it, I'm like, how do you do it? There's some people on page like you post the wrong thing, and you got like this super mom on steroids that comes in and like just starts saying, you need to start doing A, B, and C, and if you don't, this is what's going to happen. They're going to be the worst child. No, I and they just confront and confront, and it's such a harsh way to confront someone. It comes across mean and, and aggressive. And as a church, I believe God does not want us to be either of these. He doesn't want us to ignore the situation, but He doesn't want us to come at it where it's just so unlovingly where we confront. There is actually a medium ground. There's actually a happy ground on, on how to do it. In Daniel chapter 4, we come to a story in Scripture when someone needs to confront King Nebuchadnezzar. We talked about King Nebuchadnezzar last week, about the, the king of Babylon who was dead set on conquering the known world at that time. And King Nebuchadnezzar uh, would take the best and the brightest from each city, and he conquered and kidnapped these kids. They're about 12 to 15 years of age, and take them back to Babylon. And what he would do in essence is that he would brainwash these young men and women uh, and, and kind of indoctrinate them to things of Babylon so that they could help Babylon prosper. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar kidnapped a few young boys, and including the guy that we're talking about today, Daniel, and who we guess was about 13 to 15 years old. And what was kind of interesting last week, we left off where he won the king's favor. Do you guys remember that from last week? He won the king's favor. He, he, the king was saying, you can eat the stuff of my food. And Daniel says, you know what? Uh, I don't feel right about that, so I'm going to take a stand right here. And so throughout that whole deal, there was like a little kind of wager going on. At the end, the king noticed that Daniel was far better, and he won the king's favor. Well, in this piece of scripture that we're going to read about today, we're actually going to fast forward about five decades. We're going to fast forward a few decades where Daniel is about 45 to 50 years old. And Daniel, to this point, has done some really cool things, so much so that the king now relies on Daniel for him to do a few things for his kingdom, including interpreting dreams. Now, before we go into scripture, I want to talk about this thing of interpreting dreams, because if you come at it the wrong way, it can sound a little iffy. It can sound more uh, like predicting the future, those things, and kind of just kind of like, ooh, type interpreting dreams type thing, rub the crystal ball, that stuff. That's not what it is, not at all. Interpreting dreams is not like a horoscope when it's predicting the future. It's not, uh, but we can read the Bible from cover to cover, and it's interesting that God speaks through dreams. God speaks through dreams, including this case that we're about to read together. But dreams in themselves are really interesting. So I did some research, did some studying, and kind of looked up some science journals exactly why we have dreams. We have dreams all the time. For example, um, have, you, have you guys ever had a dream like where you're falling? Like you're just falling and falling, right? I've had that a few times. Uh, a lot of times dreams are made up of where our body's at at that time, like how, how we're emotionally feeling. Like for an example, if you have a dream that you're falling, it's usually because you're experiencing something you can't control. You just feel your body just senses you're just out of control. Um, how many of you guys had a dream uh, where you forgot a test or an exam or something really important? I've had a dream where I've gotten up here and I forgot to write a sermon. I've had those dreams. It happens about every other week. Let me tell you what, what, what that you, it means that you don't feel adequately prepared. That's what you, usually when I have, it means that I need to go and pray and get my thoughts in order. That's usually what that means. But th that's what happens. If you had a dream that you're stuck, like you can't get somewhere, it feel, it, it may, me, uh, sorry, it may mean that you feel overwhelmed, like you're just overwhelmed and just loaded down. If, uh, if your dream uh, that you're naked and exposed, how many of you guys have had those dreams? Don't raise your hands. I don't want to know. 
but it means that you feel vulnerable in some area of your life. If you dream that you have to go to the bathroom, you have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> Wake up and go to the bathroom. Do not go to the bathroom in your dream. It, trust me on that. But dreams are interesting, and sometimes what you feel in your dreams carry on when, when, when you're awake. Has that ever happened? Like, for an example, uh, about six months ago, I can't exactly remember what happened, but my wife had a dream where I did something that just ticked her off. I don't know what it was, but I can sense I did something bad when we woke up the next morning. And I'm like, I don't remember what I did. And so she's just angry and kind of just like this little fuming, and she goes, does her thing, and she comes out, and she's like, I'm sorry. Kind of, I just had a dream that you did this, and I'm like... Why am I paying for that? It was a dream. But, but dreams do that. Dreams do that all the time because dreams are super interesting. And so King Nebuchadnezzar, he had this really terrible, terrible dream. And you can read the previous scripture from Daniel 4. But this is what happened in the dream. And you can read about it in the verses earlier. King Nebuchadnezzar dreamt that there was this massive tree. And it just grew and grew and grew so much that the tops of the tree touched heaven. And the shade of its leaves and branches covered the entire earth. Then a loud voice, it's most likely God, because we can kind of read it from here. Uh, a loud voice from heaven told the people to cut, cut down the tree, and the tree fell. But then the voice said, leave the stump so people can see it. And what's interesting is when King Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, he called his chief magicians. A lot of times these kings would have magicians and these things. Not like magicians in the sense that we go and watch a magic show and uh, illusionists, not that. But these are kind of like uh, sorcerers, I guess, for lack of a better word. He'd call them saying, hey, you know what, this is my dream. Interpret for me. And what I love about this is because some translations said the magicians couldn't interpret it. And we can read that says, oh, they didn't have the ability to do that. But the original translation says they wouldn't interpret it. Very two different meanings. And I would probably go with they would interpret it because during this time, King Nebuchadnezzar was the king of killing the messenger with bad news. So if you had bad news, would you tell the king about this dream, right? Because really any elementary school age child can interpret this dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, dude, you're the tree. Nothing's good coming out of this. So, they, so I would probably go with the translation that they wouldn't interpret the dream. So the king did something very interesting. He says, you know what? Go get Daniel. I've known Daniel for the last 45 years. Bring him here. He can help me because you guys are no good. And this is what happens. Daniel knew exactly what the dream meant, and this is what it says. You can follow along on the screen. Daniel 4, 22, then to 25 through 26. It says this. It is you, O king, meaning the tree. The tree is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Really quick, notice how Daniel starts in a loving way. He kind of praises him. It doesn't sound like bad news right now. But 25, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat the grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time, meaning seven years, shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules and the kingdom of men gives to, to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. 
And really, Daniel could have stopped there. He says, you know what? The tree is you. Um, until you recognize who the one true God is, um, you're the tree that's going to be cut down. And the stump's going to be there as a sign to you that after seven years, if you do not come before the Lord and repent, that stump's just remain a stump. But if you turn your heart, the stump can grow back. That's what he's saying. And Daniel really could have left it there. He could have said, you know, King, that the dream was about you. And Daniel goes on further, and he literally begins to risk his life by standing up to the king. Because interpreting that dream, that wasn't standing up. He goes on further. He stands up to the king because of this one thing I believe that he has. He has love for the king. He cares about the king. He has compassion for the king. And this is why I talked about at the very beginning is how do you stand up to someone that you love? How do you stand up to somebody that you care about? Well, Daniel does exactly that. Daniel verse 27, he says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed and that, they, that may perhaps be lengthening of your prosperity. He's pretty much saying this. He says, you know what? If you could take my advice, if you can listen to anything that I'm saying, uh, here it is. Stop sinning and do what is right. That's my advice to you, king. And really, that could have guaranteed Daniel's death because the king doesn't like being confronted. He could have said, okay, off with your head. But Daniel stood up to the king. And really, whatever we confront someone in a loving matter, this is the bottom point of why we do it, isn't it? We see them hurting, and we try to steer them back on the right path. We see them doing something wrong. We say, hey, do you know what? I've lived this life. I have a little bit of experience. Uh, if you can listen to anything that I say, stop doing that and start doing this. We confront them. And let me say this, if you're living life with other brothers and sisters of God, you are doing community with one another, you're praying for one another, you're helping one another and being accountable to one another, there is a time where God is going to ask you to stand up for what is right and confront that person. Uh, let me say it this way, church is a really messy deal. I think a lot of times, especially if we're growing up in church, we kind of have this romantic dream about what church is, this beautiful picture where everyone just gets along, and there's no fights, and there's no fusses, and there's no messes, and we think it's just one big happy hurrah. That's far the picture of church. We all come in with our messes, don't we? We all have different backgrounds, we have different perspectives, we have different ideas how things should be ran, and really we just have a, this huge confliction of personalities, and soon what happens is conflict begins. But if conflict can be handled right, conflict could be healthy. Conflict could be healthy. And just like God is going to call others to stand up to you because you may be blinded by something. So not only are we going to stand up to others, but there might be a time where God might ask someone to stand up to you. How weird is that? Especially for me as a pastor, I have to make sure I'm open to that because a lot of times I, I, I have times where I think, okay, this is what it is. I know how church should be. And then someone says, uh, just wait. Just wait a bit. And I'm going to talk to you exactly how we go about that. But this is why we're talking about standing up to it. Because whenever God is going to ask you to stand up to somebody in this life, you have to do it in a loving and prayerful way. You have to do it in a loving and prayerful way. We, we saw how Daniel did it. He did it in such a way that was actually respectful and loving without losing the heaviness of the message. 
How do you do that? He did it in a loving and prayerful way. What am I, what am I mean by, about prayerful? This is what I mean. I mean that as you stand up to that person, be praying that it actually goes in the way that it betters the person. Let me say it this way. Never confront somebody with the intentions of tearing them down. Never confront somebody with the ultimate goal of making them feel worse than what they already feel like. Always confront somebody with the intention of making them better. How many, have you guys ever like left a conversation where you just feel, ugh? Like you're feeling good and then that conversation happened and you're like, oh, that did nothing. Same thing. I've had some people that come up to me and, you know, they tell me they have the, the gift of calling out people's sin in their life, which, you know, I would argue is not a gift. <laughs> to which I chuckle, but I would watch them, watch them operate in that. And what usually happens is that they'll begin to call out other people's sin in such a way that it's actually super destructive. It, it, it's like, it's like they, they've got this, this, this crown on their head and they're like, Thou saith the Lord, do this or die. Like, at, at least that's what we feel like. You need to do that because, you know, that's not of God or you'll end up in the fiery pits where there's, no, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth and go like old school King James on you. And it's like, what is going on? And, and they, they just leave them there. And it's, it's not good. It's not good. What is a person to do with that? In, in my experience, this is what happens if someone approaches me with that, just because I, I'm, I like to confront a little bit, is it provokes the person just to do more in spite of what they're saying. It's almost like telling a kid, don't touch that. Well, now they're going to touch it. But if you approach the confrontation in a way that is prayerful and loving, in a way that you want the outcome to be the, the betterment of that person, God has more room to work in that person's life. Galatians 6.1 says it this way. He says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, meaning if you're doing something wrong, you who are spiritual should restore him. You should. But... Do it in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Paul wrote this to a church and is saying, if you see someone that loves Jesus that is sinning, you who also love Jesus should confront them. But do it in a nice way. Do it in a nice way. The New Living Translation says it this way, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. That's how you confront people. The next two points are not really points. In fact, I would say that they're, they're prayers that I believe that we should be praying when we have those meetings of confrontation. And from what we read, when we confront someone, we need to be praying this first one. God, help me confront with the goal of restoration. God, help me confront with the goal of restoration. This should be the reason why we confront somebody. Why do we want to confront them? Because I want to help restore them. I want to help them to get back on the right path. I want to help them to, to see what they're doing, and hopefully they'll turn their life around in a better way. God, help me confront with the goal of restoration. This should be the reason why we confront somebody, because we want to see them restored. We want to see them to get better. Listen, church, we never confront because we think we're right. We never confront because we think we're in the right. It does a, it's a horrible way to start off an argument. It's a horrible way to start off a confrontation. And I can just tell just by the quietness in this room this morning that we don't like confrontation. We don't like having this discussion. 
that a lot of times when this stuff comes up, we'll just ignore it, even though, even though that we know 100% it's not of God. How do you get them to steer back on the right way? Confrontation works best with the goal of restoration. Galatians 6.1, let's look back on them. It says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You should do it in a spirit of gentleness, not in a, a spirit of anger. I think a lot of times we, we kind of just press it down until we just explode, and then we're like, okay, now I can go and have this conversation. Don't wait till that point. That's not good. Uh, or in a spirit of, I'm right. So, you, so a lot of times we'll try to go off, and we'll kind of form our own little group, and we'll say, okay, this is what's happened, and Susie said this, but I said this, but we know that I'm right, and Susie's in the wrong. I mean, what do you guys think? And you know that they're going to say that you're right, and so they kind of come up and says, all right, so I'm right, and you're wrong, and this is what it means. Not in a good way to start the conversation. Or definitely in a spirit of, you better do this before you face God's wrath. That doesn't work either. Being a youth pastor for four years, I figured out that is the last thing that you say to a person. But you do it in a spirit of gentleness, in a spirit of being kind, in a voice like this, where it's just a nice, loving conversation. And a lot of times I heard it this way, especially from parenting, you do better correction with a still small voice than with a loud, violent yell. And if you can bring the conversation down to here, and the reason I'm telling you this is because look how God confronts us. This is not just a DIY, how to have confrontation, how to be a better person. Look how God confronts you in the middle of your mess, in the middle of my mess. How did he do it? He didn't strike me with lightning. He didn't send me on a, a wild goose chase. He didn't do all this stuff. He didn't, you know, it says, okay, I've had enough with you. You're out of here. No. He came to me like that picture with the prodigal son where the father just came out running to him. He says, you know what? I love you and I want the best for you, but let's make a little tweaks here and there. And he did it with a still small voice. This is why we talk about this church. When I first entered ministry about seven years ago, I was a, a little bit rough around the edges, and at times I could rub people the wrong way, and sometimes I did intentional, not going to lie. Sometimes I still do it intentional. But I, I'm the confrontational type, but whenever I did something wrong, I would have some people that would just hate it and would at times kind of write me like a letter, an email, and hoping I would get it. And more times than not, I'd get it and I'd read it and I said, and I throw it and, and I do the opposite of what they wanted me to do because I'm just that type of person. And it didn't do any good. And, and because what happened, and you can ask my wife about this, is, is, is I, I would read these emails, I would read these letters, and at the end of it, I would just be frustrated. And I'd be up to here with my blood pressure and just like, oh, like, like I'm not, it's, it's not good. And, and, and it's more, more likely because, you know, I can't hear the tone. I can't hear the love. I just see anger and resentment. And, and I don't know this and I don't know that. And, then and it would just really just end up ruining my whole week. There was a time where I was going on vacation and I, I got a letter and I read it and I showed my wife and I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to, how I'm going to handle this. And she's like, oh, you'll be fine. That whole week, she can tell me I was wrestling with that whole week. And it's because those, a lot of times those letters and emails didn't come from a, a spirit of gentleness or with the intention of restoration. It was more like, this is what you're doing wrong. You should be doing it this way. But then I've had some really good confrontations. 
There was a gentleman that needed to meet with me and started out the meeting of how he was just impressed by the church. And, uh, and he loved my family, loved my wife and my kids, and supported us in what we're doing, and, but knew that I truly wanted to do what God wanted to do. And, and I had a feeling going in this meeting, I'm like, oh, babe, this meeting, I don't know what it's going to be like, and just be praying. And he started the meeting off like this, and I'm like, this is a totally different way I thought this was going to go. Because he's like, Vaughn, you know, I love you. Uh, you do a good job. Uh, I love your kids. This ministry is awesome. The church is growing. Uh, but I know you want to do what is right. And I know you want to do what God wants to do in this church. And so what he did is that he asked me to pray about an aspect of ministry that maybe he could do a little bit different and maybe a little bit better. And at the end, he just said this. He said, Vaughn, just commit it to prayer. Just pray. Ask God. If God says yes, and that's up to you. If God says no, ignore everything that I just said. And let me tell you, I left that meeting fulfilled, actually. I left, okay, all right. Okay, God, talk. And you know what happened? I didn't even have to have like the, you know, the big super, I didn't like go on a big fast or a prayer or anything. Like the next Sunday, I was about to do that part of ministry, and God says, remember what that guy said? Yeah, do that. And see, Two different examples, two different approaches, two different results. Leave the confrontation fulfilled. Let me also say this, that if Christianity for you is just trying to get to church on Sundays and call it good, you're never going to get too far in the things of God. And this is why I say this. God does his best work. I believe this with all my heart. God does his best work when we open our lives to others and give access for people to speak into your life and for you to speak into my life. And that means to speak about the hard things of life. If we just treat our, just our relationship with, I'm just going to go to Sunday and that's good, you're not going to experience this healthy confrontation, this healthy conflict, that, that healthy kind of iron sharpens iron and setting you on the right path. You're not going to experience that. But if you make your spiritual life a priority and you say, you know what, I'm going to go beyond Sundays. I'm going to join the community groups that we're talking about today. I'm going to, I'm going to serve on the serve day. I'm going to jump all in. I'm going to do those things. You begin to develop these relationships. And pretty soon you're going to find those good friends that when you have that difficult time, they can come and speak into your life. It's so healthy. In fact, I think that's the picture of the church that God wants us to be. You speak into my life, I can speak into your life. It's not going to be the best things. We might have a little arguments here and there, but at the end of the day, we know that we're good because we have this common relationship with God. And that's why we're talking about this, because we don't want to wait. We don't want to put it, we don't want to ignore it, but we also don't want to overcharge and say, you know, I don't know you, but, but this is what Scripture says, and this is where it needs. That's not going to work. You have to have that restoration and that relationship. And I, I will say this time and time again, the best way to foster this is through community groups where you get to do life with one another and speak to one another and develop that community with one another. I mean, this is where, where marriages begin to work well, where we help parent children together, where, where if a problem arises, we can walk through it together. When we do community together, especially through the groups and all the various things that we do, we can really compress into the things of God. We can really dive in. And that's why the second prayer is this. God, help me confront with caution. Look at the last part of Galatians 6.1. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. 
God, help me confront with caution. Why does Paul say this? This is the same message that Jesus gave when he taught that, hey, you shouldn't point out the speck in your brother's eye while you have a big old stick in your eye. It's the same same message, the same same meaning. He says, be careful when you confront an issue because you might be struggling with it too. You might be wrestling it with it too. Meaning you confront someone with an issue, you can, you can become vulnerable to pride. And I have to watch this even with myself, that we can start thinking like, man, you know what? I saw what they were doing. I called it out. I feel good. Man, I've got it all together. You got to watch that. Or maybe like, I, I'm pretty spiritual and they're not. You have to watch that. We have to watch that because here's another thought. If you have a concern confronting an issue, it could be because you struggle with it too. And I think a lot of times when we see a sin issue rise and our first job is wanting to call it out, check yourself first. Because the reason that you're wrestling with that burden is because you're wrestling with it too. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, you know what? Before you go and call them out, Call yourself out first. Look in the mirror. Are you wrestling with it too? I have seen this with, with men's groups where, where a guy would reveal that he's been struggling with, with like pornography and then the holy one of the group would come out and tell them that, you know, you need to change or worse yet, that if you don't change, we're going to kick you out of the group. Uh, and, and in my opinion, that's a little bit overkill. But what would happen is that the, the holy one of the group, the reason that he acted is because he's struggling with the very same thing. And this is why we have to confront with caution. And why we have to confront with the intention of restoration. Not beating them down. Not just trying to cut them at their knees. Not trying to destroy them and make them feel worse. Trust me, they already feel really bad. But if you confront with the goal of restoration, things can change because it's that when we create that picture of church where we're helping one another, we're helping each other, and we love each other, that is when we become an effective church. That's where it starts. So let's wrap up today's story in Daniel, in Daniel 4. Phyllis, if you want to come up. King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Daniel interpreted it and confronted him that the tree was him and the kingdom was great. We got that far. But God is going to cut you down. But the good news is that he'll leave a stump. So at the end of seven years, you can come back. And if you recognize who the one true God is, he'll help you rebuild your kingdom and your kingdom will be established once more. And then Daniel took a stand, and the king asked him to, to stop sinning. Daniel asked the king to stop sinning, do what is right, so God can have mercy on him. And do you know what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar after Daniel gave him that advice? You know what happened? He didn't listen. He didn't. Nothing happened. He kept doing what he was doing, and this dream became a reality. He, be, he became crazy like a wild man. You can read in scripture, he says that he was out in the field with the other beasts. He was on all fours, eating grass like an ox. He, he, he grew out his hair and he was wearing raggedy clothes. And people, when they looked at him, they, not, they didn't see the great King Nebuchadnezzar. They just saw a crazy man. But seven years passed. And just as the dream said, King Nebuchadnezzar had enough. I'm going to read this. Verse 34 says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me, and the blessed the Most High, and praise and honored him who lives forever. You see, King Nebuchadnezzar knew what he had to do to make things right. 
the reason I mention that is because a lot of times when we confront people, they may not listen right away. You know, when I was in college, I was going through all my college years and, you know, exploring and partying and all those things. And there was a time where my dad came down. He found I was flunking some classes and I went to my dorm room. And my dad was just right in the middle of my dorm room. And you can, I was just, I'm brown, but I turned white that day. It was not good. I'm like, oh no, my dad is here. What's going to happen? And he told me a thing or two. And he says, you got to get things right. And, and then he kind of get that still small voice and spoke, says, you got to get things in order. You want to happen after that? didn't listen. Kept doing what I was doing. The things that my dad talked, he says, you know what's going to happen? Those things happened. Didn't listen. But when I had enough, when I had enough and said, I, I'm tired of it, I'm, I want to fix this, my dad planted that seed. So I knew who to turn to. King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel planted that seed. And he says, do you know what? If you don't listen, this stuff's going to happen. But at the end of seven years, when you've had enough, you can come and return to what God has said. And that's exactly what happened. When you confront, don't be discouraged if they don't listen right away or they don't change right away. Sometimes it truly does take an act of God to get their attention. But prayerfully confront with the goal of restoration and caution when you stand up to someone. Because God is going to call you to stand up. Maybe today you've had a really hard marriage and he's calling you to stand up to your spouse. Not to stand up like an overthrow and like, this is how it is. No, to, to stand up and say, do you know what? I'm, I'm tired of being a doormat. I'm tired of just taking your, your, your ridicule. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of it, but this is what I want to do to make things better. Maybe it's, it's at a coworker or, or, or a boss, and you're saying, you know what, I'm, I'm not a, a whipping a post. I'm not, I'm not a person that you can just yell at all the time. No, I'm tired of that. Stand up. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's uh, raising your kids. We're saying, you know what, we need to do a better job in raising our kids. We need to stand up. This is why we talk about this. Because change does not happen unless you stand up. Change does not happen unless you stand up. Let's pray.